I had this career. I was this yoga teacher, you know. I was a body and soul expert. So I hid behind my uh, career for years. I hid behind it. You know, it's okay that I'm eating the salad because I'm a yogi. It's okay that I'm choosing not to have the all the hot chips because I'm a yogi, you know, and I really hid behind that. I can see it now. And, you know, it kept me back. It, kept, it held me back from so many opportunities. Hi guys and welcome back to the Rage Active Podcast. We're bringing you insightful conversations to help you live an active and inspired life. So make sure you hit subscribe so that you get the latest episodes as soon as they are released. I'm your host, Rachel J, and I'm so excited to welcome my guest to the show today. She is the co-founder and director of yoga at Flow Athletic. She's the author of Life in Flow. She's also been the yoga expert for Body and Soul magazine. Welcome to the show, Kate Kendall. Hi, Rach. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for being on the show. I'm so excited for this chat. And I know you've been in the health and wellness space for a very, very long time. So I'm so excited to get into all the bits and pieces with you and, and kind of pick your brain on all, all of this amazing stuff that you've been doing. So tell me a little bit about your journey firstly into yoga and the health and wellness space. Okay. Because it's been so, quite a long journey. It's a long journey. I said, really, I've been yeah. in the industry, if you call it that, I guess, the health industry with yoga for, so it just hit 41. Um, and I wow. think I took my first yoga class when I was about 21, maybe. 21. Wow. Um, and a couple of years after that is when I started doing my teacher training. Um, yeah, right. But really my journey into the space started like years before that, um, when I got into yoga, I wasn't in a great place mentally. I was on antidepressants and I, I kind of just figured that's how I was going to live. Like I was just going to be, I didn't really know any other way. I didn't know any, any alternative ways. I just kind of, um, I was told by a boyfriend at the time, his mom was a doctor and actually a really good acupuncturist and she sent me to go and see someone and this person put me on antidepressants. And so I just figured this is how it's going to be. Um, and I guess how I got to that stage, you know, we'll probably go into this a little bit more, but in my earlier years and more specifically when I was about 13, 14, I, um, I was diagnosed with anorexia. Prior to that, I was like, you know, the clown of the classroom, fire in the belly, athlete, amazing swimmer, cross-country, running, hockey, water polo, everything. I did it. I loved it all, like loved it. And, um, and yeah, just, I just, I, I developed this illness. And, and so really my, my, my journey, I always say, into yoga started right there with the eating disorder because although um, you know, I continued to struggle with it and then got put on antidepressants. It wasn't until a, a trip to the UK where I did a lot of, this was when I was, what, about 20, and I was doing a lot of partying and drinking and taking drugs and having fun and doing all that sort of stuff. And I came back from the UK and I thought, right, I'm going to ease my way back into fitness and I'm going to try yoga heard it'll give me a nice long lean limbs it'll make me look good so it was vanity it was totally out of vanity 
And I remember fumbling my way through the very first class and I remember the really weird way the guy next to me was breathing, which I now know as Ujjayi breathing. I remember the light streaming through the window, the carpet on the floor, the incense burning, the deities on the wall, and I was like, whoa, I do not belong here. But I persisted and I fumbled my way through it and um, I just remember feeling something in, in Shavasana, you know, Shavasana is for anyone who doesn't practice yoga, it's that part at the end where you just lie down, you let it all sink in. And I felt something that I hadn't felt for a long time. It was just, just a sense of connection and peace. And then I was walking home along the promenade in North, North Bondi where I was living at the time. And again, I stopped in my tracks because I could feel something. And it wasn't particularly like, it wasn't like joy, it wasn't ecstasy, it wasn't wow, I want to go back and practice yoga. It was a bit of grief and sadness that I'd suppressed for so long. Something had started to crack open. I thought, is it yoga? So I kept going back. And within a month, I started coming off my antidepressants. And then yoga has really been my medication ever since. Wow. That's amazing. And I think if anybody has not done yoga, I highly encourage you to do yoga. And like you were saying, Shavasana is one of those really amazing, I know it doesn't seem like it, well, you're actually not doing anything, you're lying down, but that's when everything sort of integrates and sinks in. And so to be able to feel, like it's so nice to hear you say that you felt those feelings of peace and not it's not even a, you know, big, massive, I'm so excited or whatever it is, but just that that peace. kind of grounding feeling, which is peace, yeah. which is and so nice. And what you said is so right, Rach. I think that's such a good description about Shambhasana. You let it sink in and you integrate. And, and you know, the asana, what we think of as yoga in the Western world, that's really like that's just one tiny little fraction of what yoga, yoga is a way of life. That's only one little bit of what yoga is. Like what we think of in the West as yoga is like a tiny little scratch of it. And it was actually developed, um, especially more of the yoga that we do, the more dynamic kinds of yoga. You know, you'll hear that it was developed for teenage young or teenage or young boys so that they could release all this excess energy and they could sit and concentrate. And that the only reason the yogis created yoga was so they could sit in meditation for longer periods of time. That was it. That wasn't to get long, lean limbs. It was so they could sit and experience. And that was that feeling when I was in Shavasana. This release of any excess anxiety, tension built up to feel (sighs) peace. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that peace feeling. It's so beautiful to hear. Um, for people listening who aren't maybe as familiar with the yogic principles, because like you just touched on there, asana means the the bodily or the, the pose part of yoga, which is probably what most of us associate with yoga is the bodily movement or the movement practice. But there are so many other aspects to the yogic or yogic principles or way of life. Mm. Can you sort of take us through the pillars between sort of the movement, the mindfulness, breath, and what what are the things that really incorporate yoga. the practice of yoga? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So if you follow um, the eight limbs, Patanjali eight limbs is you know this. I guess it's this whole. Um, I'll put them in like really simple terms. Um, it's this pathway that we've been given as yogis um, to live a more yogic lifestyle, and it's really a more sort of 
um, gentle way of living and a way that is designed to align mind, body, and soul to achieve some certain kind of enlightenment or bliss. Um, so you do, there's a series of things called the yamas and niyamas, and these are like ethic codes and ways of treating yourself and ways of treating each other, things like cleanliness, you know, cleansing the body and being kind to other people and being rigorously honest. And so this whole sort of map of ways to treat ourselves and to treat others. And then there's the asana, there's the movement. It's like cleaning out the body. Pranayama, the breath, uh, which we've been gifted with these amazing ancient technologies and they're really coming into the limelight now. Breath is like the new thing. Um, I just taught a 12 o'clock breath experience, a class that I've been teaching for a while now and it's really building. Like people love, love, loving the breath, breath work. It can take you to altered states. We can breathe to calm. We can breathe to energize we can breathe to focus really is so medicinal and then some of those other guidelines are you know focus ways to focus ways to bring our attention which is so important in this day and age and where we're at right now our focus is stolen in every different direction it's getting stolen our phones is getting stolen you know as we look around and compare ourselves to other people and advertisements and billboards and traffic. And so our focus is being stolen. We're letting it get, get it stolen. So um, yeah, focus is one of these guidelines with the, the yogic um, life meditation. Um, yeah. And this idea of withdrawing our senses for certain periods of time so we can go inside, so we can meditate, so we can practice yoga, so we can breathe. So that when we come out at the other end of a practice, of a meditation practice, of a yoga practice, we are more focused. We're better able to choose consciously in which direction we send and spend our energy. You know, I think of um, focus as like this energetic currency. And sometimes it is unconsciously being stolen from us. But when we can consciously bring our focus and bring our awareness back into the body, and sometimes it takes the ritual of an hour of yoga or half an hour of yoga or 20 minutes, whatever you've got, or meditation. And so at the end of it, in that integration, I love that word you use, the integration phase of shavasana or at the end of a meditation, the idea is that you take the yoga, you take the meditation with you into whatever you're doing, you take that focus. But to really sum it all up, and I mean that, that the ultimate goal of yoga there is samadhi or bliss you know, um, to let the ego dissolve, to, to know that you're not just this body. We're not just, we identify so, so much with the body. And God, even after all these years of practicing yoga, you know, um, I'm still learning that. I'm still learning that not to identify with the body because it's so drilled into us in society that our worth is attached to how we look. Um, and, yeah, that's one of the benefits and one of the gifts that yoga really gives us with time because it doesn't happen overnight but with time and, you know, studying the scriptures or just talking to other yogis, learning from other teachers, we, we slowly, slowly chip away and we realise that we're not just this body, that we're eternal. I really, really love that. I mean, just hearing you talk about it makes me feel peaceful just listening to it, you know, and, I mean, 
so many of those pieces that you find when you do practice yoga, like you said, bringing that into our daily lives, I guess, is the, yeah. is the goal of yoga because we want to live in that space more often, mm-hmm. I suppose. Mm-hmm. And we're con- constantly trying to incorporate those moments more frequently. So we experience that for longer periods of time outside of the yoga studio yes. because obviously we're going to when, we, when we're there, but then when we're outside of it, we want to experience that more frequently or for prolonged periods of time. And yoga is like... Yoga is like the ritual that sets us up for that default mode of focus and presence or meditation or surfing. Like you can get your yoga ritual, if you will, in other things. But the real, like out of all those things that I've just talked about, the word yoga comes from yoke, which means union, which is aligning ourselves, being aligned to, being in union with the present moment. So I know yogis who have never done a yoga posture their entire life, but they're a yogi because they're so present, so aligned to the moment when you know you when you're with someone and, and they're just with you. They're not mm. they're not trying to look over your shoulder. They're not checking their phone. They are so there, and I think that's the greatest gift you can give anyone, especially our children. Um, so we can practice yoga when we're not. We don't have to. We don't have to roll out a yoga mat and put ourselves in crazy shapes. We can practice yoga just by being in the moment. Yeah, it's about presence, right? And there's a difference between giving someone your time and giving someone your presence Mm. because it's the quality of that attention, right, that you have in the moment that you give that person. Mm. I really love that. Mm. Um, Now, obviously, you know, part of this practice is about slowing down. And this is one of the things that you talk quite passionately about and teaching people how to do this, especially when we live in the world that we do, in the culture that we do. Tell me about what you have found has been so important for people that you've seen in classes or that you've worked with that have really taken on board this art of slowing down and what it actually has done and how it has impacted them. Yeah. Yeah, great question. Okay, so I um, guess the reason why this message became so relevant to me, Rach, is because year one when we opened this business of Flow Athletic, um, my business partner and I, Benny, so the other co-founder of Flow Athletic, we were in basically reactive mode for a year because it was all new to us. I mean, he'd owned some vision personal training studios before, but that was all kind of all set out for him. He kind of had a template to work from. This was a new model. And Norm was really, when we were doing this, Norm was really doing it the way that we were doing it. That's why we just saw such, such an opportunity to have this beautiful studio that didn't feel like a gym, that kept the, kept the magic of yoga. Um, and, you know, we opened with like 200 people. So we did a pre-sale. So we opened and we were, we'll go from the beginning. Um, and at the same time, I was going through a breakup. Uh, I was engaged to be married at the time. And it was the best of times to go through a breakup like that and the worst. The best of times because I was so distracted with work. You know, I was getting here sometimes at four in the morning and I was leaving at 10 at night, doing things, finishing things off and 
paperwork and, you know, like we were doing everything back then. Now we've got an amazing team, an amazing team. We're so, so blessed. They are bloody legends, our team. Uh, and they are a family and we love them so much and they do an incredible job. But back then it was just sort of three of us doing most of it. So I get home at 10 o'clock at night and by this stage I'm couch surfing because I'm going through this breakup and I burnt out super quick. And I was diagnosed um, by a dear friend of mine, Anthea. She's just across the way here, Pothika by Anthea. She's an amazing naturopath. She basically diagnosed me with um, burnout, adrenal fatigue. And so I took myself off to the country where I'm from and I gave myself a good talking to and I started practicing the things that I had been telling people for a year in opening the business to practice and wasn't practicing myself. Um, So I decided to, in order to restore my health, yes, I had to nourish myself um, with certain foods and gentle movement, but it was also a lot of it was in doing less you know, moving away from the hustle, which there's a time for. Like when you open a business, you have to hustle. You have to hustle. Otherwise, it doesn't get done. You know, this this idea of balance, you know, I talk about it in my book, it's kind of mythical. We're always leaning into one thing more than the other. And so there was a time for that hustle, but I, I absolutely had no time for heart. And that was what what sort of threw me off. So that that's what that's what really inspired this whole um philosophy that is infused into a lot of my teaching of slowing down and then I guess I see it in students I get a real kick out of when I see students now who normally would just um, come to class finish the practice and as soon as it's namaste they're like right up rustling get out of the door quick get you know and now I see they're the ones that linger their eyes stay closed for a bit longer and their jaws are softened and they've shifted and I can feel that they've shifted. And I'm not doing that. I'm just providing a space for that and I'm just guiding them. I'm suggesting a few postures and a few series of breath works. Like they're doing it. And when they're doing it, when they're the ones that actually do it, that's when you get the lasting change. And then I see them sort of sitting out there eating their breakfast instead of rushing off to work. So that's cool. That's really cool. And I've created a couple of programs on the back of my burnout. One is called The Space Between. So that's a four-week mindfulness course um, online. And, yeah, I guess I just infuse it into all of my teachings. I think it's so important. I think we know to, we, we all know to do it, but we don't prioritize it because we're so used to the hustle. Yeah. That's been normalized. I think the hustle is normalized where that's the norm. And if you're not hustling, then something's not mm. right with you. Mm. But then this idea that I guess even when you touched on there with balance, I mean, I think you're right. We, we can't do everything all at the same time, but it's all, almost about finding that the the pendulum swings of where you're where you're swinging to and then making sure that you come back to that mm-hmm. that kind of balance in a way because like you said you you sort of when you're hustling you're obviously not slowing down but you do need to incorporate that overall so that you can sort of you know be functioning at an optimal level yeah and continue to function in the the hustle I think uh, something relevant for the hustle is like are you enjoying the hustle like can you infuse the hustle with heart? Can you find the joy in the hustle? Then it's more sustainable. Then it's fun. Then it's like, you know, I think of people like Richard Branson. I think he's hustling, but he looks like he's having lots of fun. Yeah. I think that's when the hustle yeah. can be really cool. 
have fun and and it's a game and it's playful and what's next what am I going to do today like that you know and of course we're going to be looking after ourselves what we're doing it doing the things we love the exercise that we love moving in the way that we love breathing well eating well that sort of stuff but yeah have the joy and the hustle 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 and heart combined is like yes perfect that's the that's the perfect mix. I like that. Find the heart in the hustle. Mm. I think that's so perfect to infuse mm. our hustle with the slowing down in mm. some ways. Yeah. So just like talk mm. with the hustle. Like, you know, mm. sometimes we're like, I'm so busy. I'm so busy. And it's like, but are you really? Like we're just having this conversation right now and actually you could be in the moment. You don't have to be. You're just thinking about all the things that you're busy. You're not in the moment because right here, you and I, even though we might have a lot of things going on, in this very moment, are we busy? Mm. No, we're having a conversation and we're connecting. And that's a big part of slowing down as well is like let's meet right here. Yes, finding your presence Mm. in the – or finding your awareness in the present moment. Mm. Really, yeah. So you touched on their breath work that is an area that is – becoming increasingly popular with I guess more of a mainstream practice in a way can you share a bit about your principles behind your specific approach to this kind of work and what are sort of the impacts that it has on our bodies and our minds Mm, I think to start off with I want to say that the breath is one of our most underutilized resources for health it's free it's right under our noses literally so I've always been inspired by keen about curious of practice breath work through my yogic studies like I loved I've loved it and more so in the past couple of years I've had this great teacher who I've been really lucky to become friends with her name is Cyan Pascal and she has um, a business that she's grown so beautifully called the light collective and so I feel really lucky to have met her and I learned all these incredible um, ancient techniques, pranayamas and kriyas that I just didn't learn in any of my other studies. I mean, I have done numerous teacher trainings, numerous, 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 numerous teacher trainings with teachers from all over the world and I feel so lucky to have met her because I've got these amazing technologies that I teach now at Flow and in the breath experience. And so these ways that we can alter our state and affect our digestion and wake us up in the morning or get us nice and grounded and sleepy for for nighttime. Um, So I've been really lucky in that. And there's another teacher um, who I've recently studied under Johannes Egberts, and he has a business called uh, Breathless. And that's been nothing short of profound. And... um, just learning to breathe less, you know, breathe less. We, we're such over-breathers. I even notice it in yoga classes. Um, and so I've always, with this idea of slowing down and infusing that into my classes, I've always intuitively known to breathe low, like down into the belly, and to breathe slow. And often to emphasize the exhalation and the pause at the base of the exhalation. Because I knew how that made me feel. I knew how it made me feel. But with, I guess, more of the recent studies that I've been doing, I've got the science behind it as well to know. And with the daily breath practice and noticing your progress with it, 
it has been just as profound an experience for me as picking up a meditation practice, which has also been incredible. And, um, I mean, there's just this beautiful technique. I don't even know if we have time to go into it. Um, and so, yeah, go into it. So simple. It's so beautiful. So all you need to do is um, close down your eyes. If you're driving, don't close your eyes. You can still do this <laughs> with the eyes open. And you just notice the natural rhythm of your breath. So it's that kind of breath where you're just being breathed. There's no force, there's no effort. Some mysterious force is breathing you, that same mysterious force that's breathed you since day one. And we're not going to change it so much, except that at the end of your exhalation, that space between breaths, I'm just going to rest in that space a little longer. I'm just going to linger. Before the breath moves in again, and it might have a rebound breath that might feel a little bigger. And we gently let the exhalation go again. We pause. We're breathless. You might even feel a little bit of oxygen starvation. Breathe in. And breathe out. And so the practice is on widening that gap. So if you can just spend five minutes a day widening that gap between breaths, it's doing your body so much good. You know, we're producing lots and lots of carbon dioxide. It's a relaxant. It makes us feel more grounded. I find that when I do it, especially first thing in the morning, it's really good for my digestion. You can practice longer, you know, um, breath holds there at the base of your exhalation to, to widen that space, to lower your heart rate. And it's just so powerful. And I, I really do. I, um, I encourage everyone to get curious about the breath and especially to notice, am I breathing through the nose or am I breathing through the mouth? We've become mouth breathers, well, incessant mouth breathers over time. Over time, the shape of our mouths have changed, our jaws have changed. And if you're curious to this sort of stuff, there's a great book called um, Breath by James Nestor. And um, just to be able to close down the mouth and breathe through the nose just as a start, that is going to be a huge, it's going to have a huge um, shift in the way that you feel, the way you live, the way you love and the way you connect with others. It's mm, amazing. Even thank you so much for that lovely mm. breathwork exercise and just finding, I think what you just said there, finding the space between the mm. breaths is such a nice state to be in and just kind of, so just to reiterate, it's finding a longer period of just that gap after the exhalation mm. and just having that moment of, oh, that's where you find the peace, right? Mm. That's, that's, that's in that space. Mm -hmm. It's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. So 
obviously we've touched on this a little bit. You mentioned this earlier at the beginning of our chat and this is something that you're very passionate about speaking about um, dealing with an eating disorder when you were very young or when you were diagnosed with um, anorexia. And I'm so grateful for your willingness to share this story because it is such an important topic. I think that maybe doesn't get as lot, uh, as much airtime as other types of stories, mm-hmm. but I am really interested to hear about your journey because it has been a long journey and it's a journey. And I'm I'm wondering if you can share with me where this began and what it looked like for you at the time. Mm, Yeah, and thanks for letting me talk about it. It is one of those um, illnesses that um, doesn't really get talked about as much as other mental illnesses, and it's so misunderstood. Eating disorders are very complex and they're very, very, very misunderstood. Uh, So for me, developed as I mentioned before when I was about 13 14 I was at boarding school which I loved boarding school was the best experience I'm so grateful that my parents gave me the opportunity and sent me there you know I'm this little girl from the country and so there weren't as many schools around there so they sacrificed a lot to send me off to this boarding school in Sydney and I've now got sisters for life really loved that experience but something did happen you know, it wasn't hugely significant, so it's not even worth bringing into to, to it. But I just decided that I was going to be special. I was going to be this special, special one, even though I was already so special. How can I be special? I know. I'm going to lose a few kilos. Didn't need to. I was always really athletic. I was always strong. I was always slender. And, um, and then that just became quite addictive, especially because I'd start to lose weight and People would tell me that looked good and it egged me on and encouraged me. And um, and then it just became addictive and it'd be like, how many hours can I go without eating? How little can I eat? And I knew I'd gone too far one day when my mum, I saw my mum after the school, you know, three o'clock school bell rang and um, I was heading up the boarding school stairs and I saw my mom and my mom had driven from the country, you know, a five hour drive. So she wasn't just coming for a cup of tea. And she took me off to the hospital and I got diagnosed with anorexia. And so because I was at boarding school and because I had so many eyes on me, I was, you know, I, I forced myself to eat. Um, and I, I think I had a couple of sessions with the psych I can't remember having a lot I think they saw my progress that I was putting on weight and then that therapy sort of stopped but what I kept as a secret was because I was eating to compensate for the eating I started to purge and so that anorexia um, became anorexia and bulimia and the bulimia stopped um, stuck with me for years and years and years, as did the restriction, as did the anorexia. So technically it was anorexic bulimic. And, but it was this little secret that I kept to myself for 27 years. And actually, so when I first started yoga, you know, and I came off my meds, it definitely helped. And it made the episodes of the binge purging and the restricting less, but it didn't stop it altogether. And how could it? Because I was keeping it all a secret. And I'd see 
I'd have talk therapy and I'd have different therapists from time to time and I'd only get so far. It helps and I think there's a real place for it but I never really felt like I could uh, relate to that person. Um, and I was, and, 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 and outside of that, I was keeping it this dirty little secret that I, and I was so ashamed of it. And I had this career. I was this yoga teacher, you know, I was a body and soul expert. So I hid behind my, uh, career for years. I hid behind it. You know, it's okay that I'm eating the salad because I'm a yogi. It's okay that I'm choosing not to have the all the hot chips because I'm a yogi, you know, and I really hid behind that. I can see it now. And, you know, it kept me back. It, kept, it held me back from so many opportunities. It held me back. Like even though I was going through all that pain and all that suffering and all that fatigue, I'm amazed at how miraculous our bodies are and how they just keep going, you know. I'm so grateful to my body that it's that I'm still standing, you know. And it wasn't, and the next thing I'm going to share is, um, it, you know, it might be slightly controversial um, and it's my own experience, but I think the real healing journey for me was two things. One, I felt really pulled. I felt really pulled and called to doing plant medicine. And so I dabbled in that and I experimented with that and I had moments of like, I get it. I'm not this body. I'm not this body. Um, and I think you have to be really, you know, and it's, it's obviously not for everyone and it's, it's something you have to be called to. So, um, it could be quite controversial that I'm saying this, so do with it what you want. It's your, it's your truth. So we, we, we'll share your truth. I think that there is, you know, a lot of work. I think they need to be done in controlled environments. And I'm really grateful to hear that there's a lot of uh, experimentation in terms of therapy and using some of these plant medicines, which have been used for centuries by um, many indigenous cultures, so I think there's a lot to be said for them. However, it's not it's not a it's not a golden pill. It's not going to fix your eating disorder. It's not going to fix your drug addiction. But you can have moments of clarity. They can help. Then the second and probably the most profound thing for my healing was I had a friend who, who was nagging me for years to join a 12-step program for eating disorders. And I was like, uh, it's not for me. It was almost a bit, I was a bit ego, like I don't need a 12-step program. I don't need any of that, you know, God stuff. And in a moment of desperation, I was sitting with her and, and her partner had, has been in recovery from in, in NA for years, you know, and has had huge success with it. And in just in this moment of sheer desperation, she's like, Kate, what have you got to lose? Like I was like a rock bottom type vibe. And so I looked up the meeting and it was during COVID and so one of the lockdowns. So I um, I jumped on a Zoom and I just remember hearing all these stories from other women and men. 
and it was the single most healing hour of my life just hearing these other stories and that I'm not alone, you know, because eating disorders are so, you know, you can be so secretive with them and that, and that fuels eating disorders. Eating disorders thrive on secrecy. They thrive on shame. So as soon as you start talking out loud in front of people and no one, you know, 12 steps, no one is there to coach you. No one is there to tell you you're okay. You have your finite amount of time to talk and then that's it. Move on to the next person. And so to be witnessed and to witness others, that's what got me sober and that's what continues to get me sober. So physically I'm, I'm sober. There's none of the eating disorder habits. Um, but mentally, you know, 27 years of having this illness, it's taking me some time to catch up. But um, I'm getting there day day by day, meal by meal, moment by moment. <laughs> yeah. It's the only way to get there, right, mm. in being in the present moment. Mm. What an incredible journey and story. There's so many things that you just said there that I want to touch on. Um, firstly, when you just touched on their plant medicine, I think there's definitely in the mental health space, there's definitely evolutions around guided practices with that. But I definitely know um, in terms of my peers who are psychologists that, and in that field are working with things like DMT, ayahuasca for the purposes of healing and in a guided space where you can actually go there and with an intention of what you want to look at and and really work with whatever you feel called to work with and there's no judgment about what it is you decide to, you know, use for your healing journey. So it's it's so great that you found things that have worked for you to bring you those moments of either realization or clarity, whatever it is that you've needed for that time in your journey. Um, and just even talking about hearing the stories and even in this, you know, the 12-step program, it's almost like having this space where you are given permission to share your story because there's such amazing power in in storytelling and hearing, almost resonating with other people's stories and connecting with them. So I am so happy to hear that there's been so many different aspects to your journey that have unlocked things and helped you along this, this path. Um, I'm so interested to know, because obviously it's been quite a long time and 27 years, this has been a thing because I think it was more recently that you spoke about this, that this was something that you were currently, or at the time when you came out with your blog post about this, that this was something that you were currently still dealing with. Whereas previous to that, people I think had known about you dealing with an eating disorder in the past, but it wasn't something that you had shared um, whilst you were working through this sort of yogic journey, I suppose. Was there a moment where you felt, what was the moment for you where you, you decided, I need to share mm. this publicly in spite of what I have previously thought about how it may be detrimental to my career? Mm. I think what made me ultimately share it and be very, very, very honest and current with it is the fact that I did feel like there was a feeling like I had not been honest and authentic. And because I do reach a lot of people in my studio and um, with, you know, articles I write, media, whatever, 
I just felt like it was my responsibility to do that. And, um, yeah, and since doing that and, and on my healing journey, that A, coming out about that in itself was also just propelled my recovery. And I don't think we all always need to, sh- it, I just felt right for me. I don't think we always need to share what we're going through. Sometimes those things should be kept for you and for those people that are closest to you because otherwise too many external influences may not help. But I do remember another time I was, again, um, having such a, uh, one such ceremony with um, a medicine and with an incredible um, shaman who I was lucky to be working with pretty much one-on-one. Um, and I just remember us at once at one point kind of lying in the sun in nature and um, I just remember feeling these tears well up and I just remember crying and crying. And this is like, this sort of been like 10 months into my recovery and I realised I wasn't crying just for myself and the release and, and, and healing for myself. I was crying for millions of women and men across the globe who suffer from this and who have kept it suppressed and kept it a secret for so, so long. I mean, I do feel more, I do feel very, very drawn to working with women and I do have an amazing wing woman who I've been working with. Um, Her name's Carissa and we've been creating programs. We've been, well, not so much programs, but workshops. We sit in circle in ceremony and we breathe and we move and Carissa brings the science behind she's also recovered for many more years than me recovered from any eating disorder she brings in the science and the chemistry what happens when we're starving ourselves what happens why do we want to eat all the things why do we want to binge and um yeah I just I just feel like me sharing that if I can help one two three ten thousand Amazing, because I think this is the start of um, us as society talking more to eating disorders and it's not this shameful secret. And you know what? If you ask me now, I'm glad that I had that. I'm glad that I have, and I still say I have an eating disorder because I do believe that's something that's kind of there. It's, it's, it's just there and you have to be vigilant, you know. But I'm glad. I feel like it's a gift in many ways it propelled me in many ways it 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 made me exceed and do all the things that I've done in my career um and it's also a gift because i now get to help so many other women and i now get to help so many other people who are struggling and that feels so profoundly fulfilling like yeah, yeah. so i'm grateful that's so good. It's such a, a beautiful way to to look at the experience as well. And almost in a way, if you think about it, it's like, you know, you found a purpose there, mm. right, in, in helping other people. Mm. And I know a lot of eating disorders kind of centralise. I know that especially we, we think it's about food and the relationship with your body, with it, which, of course, there is that element of that because that's sort of the external almost like habitual things that you will do to 
kind of engage with this with this eating disorder. So can you tell me a little bit about how this journey has impacted your relationship with your body and food and how it's shifted over the years throughout your journey? But then I also want to talk about this idea about control because that's sort of mm. almost a separate piece to it as well. And that's very common mm. with, with eating disorders. So firstly, let's chat about your relationship with your food and, and body and how that has changed. Mm. So one of the, also one of the catalysts, one of the things that really made me go, right, you need to recover, is having my daughter. Um, and I'm very aware of the fact that it's not what I say to her that makes a difference. It's how I feel about myself. So what I'm embodying, she's going to embody. Yeah, what I'm model what you're doing. Yeah, mm. what I'm modelling, I'm modelling to her. So even though, you know, none of the behaviours I would do in front of her, they're energetic beings and they can feel. She can feel my energy. We're so connected. She can feel how I feel around food. She can feel the stress. She can feel the anxiety. And I don't want to entrain her. I didn't want to entrain her. So my goal was, yes, to get well for myself, but also so that she didn't have to grow up with this illness as well. That was a big, big, big one. Now I'm more, and part of the program for me in 12 Steps, it's all mapped out. Like I just have to eat every meal. You know, meals and snacks. Yeah. This is non-negotiable. Yeah. And I'm more inclusive of all kinds of foods. There's no fear foods. I might still fear certain foods. That's still some, some you know, in, in getting mentally sober again, that still comes into it, but I do it anyway. Mm-hmm. And the fear of, like, if <laughs> you would think it was so crazy when I was first getting sober from this, I had to have all my meals, all of my meals served to me. Right, so my partner would serve me my meals, and yeah. to you or to anyone else, that probably you're probably like, hell yeah, I don't have to cook. Someone's preparing my meals. Someone's serving, but for me, it was sheer terror. And so, my partner, amazing, so supportive. He would put a bowl of spaghetti bolognese in front of me, and I'd be like, I don't think I can do this. But you know what? It's what's it's all in your mind. It's the fear of it. And I would slowly eat that bowl of pasta and I would be mindful and I would savour it and I would get to the bottom of that bowl of pasta and I remember what it was like as a kid to enjoy food and how good it tasted instead of worrying about it. And so I just got through it meal by meal. And now I'm, yeah, I'm inclusive and I'll eat all all different kinds of foods. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's really important. I think that's, I think what we think of as healthy eating has become a bit warped with orthorexia. And you know, I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of people in the fitness industry who I'll say it, they're hiding behind their careers. And I think mm-hmm. there's some unhealthy habits out there. Um, yeah. But, you know, everyone's on their own journey. So I guess, yeah, my relationship to food is different. There's no bad foods as such, and I try and be inclusive. If my daughter wants to eat an ice cream and we're having a treat, I'll eat an ice cream with her. I'll eat the ice cream, you know. Uh, But I like to look after myself. I like to eat unprocessed foods, close to the earth, organic, 
But if something's served to me and it's not organic and it's processed, I'm going to eat it too. So I eat, I eat to be social. I eat to nourish. Um, I eat for occasions, you know, I celebrate. So I guess that's one, one, one and variety as well. I used to just eat, I'd be very fixed in what I would eat. And now it's, variety and it opens you up to so many different things and I have such I feel like cooking for me now is like meditation it just feels exciting and creative what can I create what can I make I'm not great at it but hey I still do it (laughs) it's as long as you enjoy it I think is the main thing right (laughs) so this is I mean and that's so lovely to hear that you've got such a beautiful way of approaching food now and and being able to incorporate all different types of food into your daily life. So this piece about control, which I think is something that definitely we've had quite a few guests on the show talk about their experiences with eating disorders and they all have brought up this idea about control, which is such a big piece to this, I think, as well. So I'm interested to hear what this has looked like for you in terms of your relationship with control because that's a a whole nother piece that is – I think, interesting to kind of unpack. Mm. Control. Control is what started it for me. That's what started the eating Mm. disorder, being able to control my body weight and shape and in my fellowship, our uh, drug, if you will, like in NA or AA, the drug is drugs or alcohol and so you just stay away from those things. For us, our drug isn't food. Many people would think that our drug of choice is food. It's not. Our drug is controlling our body weight and shape. And mm-hmm. so letting go of control has been really challenging. You know, and I mentioned the beginning when I had to have all my meals um, served to me, like that is the ultimate loss of control. It's the ultimate loss of control. And so I guess the opposite of control, which is what I focus on or try and focus on and it's work in progress, um, is surrender. And that's another big, you know, aspect of what yoga is, surrender, trust. Mm. And, yeah, it's an everyday process. And um, I don't know if you've heard of Tara Brock. She's also got a great podcast and she talks a lot yeah. about, um, you've, you've heard her talk about the over-controller. So she talks about the over-controller I've heard of, in right, all yeah. of us. There's an over-controller in all of us. And um, I also bring over-controller sort of philosophy into my classes because you're over-controller he or she will show up and she'll show up, protect you in some way. She'll show up or he'll show up to protect you from a confronting situation or a really challenging posture on the yoga mat. You'll grit, you'll grind, you'll hustle. And, um, and the idea is what Tara teaches is to befriend your over-controller. So if he or she shows up as tension in the body, you take your awareness there because we're and where focus goes, energy flows. The same my over control is showing up in the shoulders because I'm getting all tense and stressed. I notice it, soften. And your over controller is kind of like, um, you know, that person that you work with or someone you know in your life who they're just they're quite often nagging or they're like wanting to be seen a lot. Like that's what our over controllers are. They just want to be seen and acknowledged. And when we notice them, when we acknowledge them, We even have a conversation with them. We befriend them, you know, and it can be as simple as, hey, thank you so much for showing up. I don't need you today. 
Um, and that can be a physical thing or it could be a mental thing. And, and it sounds crazy, but it works. It's just to soften our over controllers and to notice when they show up. But, yes, surrender. I think surrender is a big part of what it is to be spiritually fit and just trust. Yeah. So that's yeah. work in progress for me. <laughs> 100%. I think, that, I think that's a concept or concepts that we all, I mean, I feel like it's very common not just around, you know, if you're talking specifically in the context of an eating disorder, that's control around body weight and shape. But like you said, many of us struggle with not being in control in any area of our life, in, in could be any area uh, where there's uncertainty and dealing with that uncertainty is scary. It's a scary thing. And I love that idea um, about kind of taking taking stock of or acknowledging your over-controller. It's almost like finding, because we all have different parts to ourselves. There's all these different parts within us. And like you said, some of them just want to be seen and acknowledged. And so just acknowledging your over-controller may be able to just soften that and allow you to go into that space of surrender and letting go. Because it, it is, I think when you think about surrender mentally, I think one of the things that comes up is, well, how do you do that? Because it's not actually doing anything. Mm -hmm. It's actually letting go and releasing, which is not something that I think culturally speaking, we've been really taught to do. Mm. And so I really love that. And I think you're right. Like it's a practice. Mm. We have to practice it wherever we are on our, on our journey. You're right. It is, um, it is doing nothing. It's actually, but it's also, it's also a very dynamic space of I think in, in surrender is also listening and so listening for guidance and trust and then acting on that, that's surrender yes. as well. So it's not like this wet, limp noodle type, not going to do anything, surrender. It's like, okay, I'm trusting that I've been guided into this decision and I'm going to trust it. Yeah, surrender. letting go of control, letting go of the control yeah. of it. So I think, you know, you've spoken about obviously all the all the different practices of yoga that have helped you along this journey incorporating breath work meditation and mantras into your routine what does that look like now for you has that is that different now that you're on i would say the other side or a different part of your journey mm, yeah well my yoga practice for example is much more gentle when I roll out the mat, it's very much a practice of listening to my body on the day. So I might, like my default if I'm practicing yoga is to roll out the mat, bust out a few sun salutes. But when I start doing those sun salutes, if my body doesn't feel to it, I'll just slow down, take some restorative postures, breathe a lot, or breathe less, but, you know, lean into the breath. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you're, I definitely feel the need to, to move my body in a gentle way but do it frequently, you know, everyday sort of thing, even if it's just a five-minute little lengthen out, stretch out. And I'm lucky that I've got the studio here. I've got floor athletics so I can go into a string class or I, can, or I can go and do, you know, something. I love walking too. It's nice and light and it's gentle and I get to notice a lot and I slow down and it's just a nice way to get out of my head and into the body. But then in terms of my sadhana, my rituals, my daily practice, um, at the moment every month it's a little bit different, especially because I'm leading um, 
a container here at Flow Athletic with some of our Flow athletes. There's about 23 students doing this um, six-month container called Spiritually Fit. So every month they get given a new set of kriyas and breathworks and meditations. And so they might spend 15 minutes doing a series of breathworks and then they'll drop into meditation. So that, that's basically what my sadhana looks like. Um, it's different every month. But I, I, in the whole month, it's consistency. Consistent because the consistency is where the potency, where the power comes into it. It's, it's like consistent practice. It's consistent dedication to yourself. Rituals are like deeper reverence for yourself. And even though I take discipline to do, like, I don't always feel like getting up when it's freezing cold and doing my sadhana, but it's the kind of discipline, not the hustle discipline, it's the kind of discipline that creates freedom because then I own the day. Otherwise, I'm chasing my tail the whole day, and that's just me. Mm. Like I need to do that in the morning in order to feel alive, in order to feel creative, in order to feel productive. Yeah, amazing. I like that. It's so nice. And you're right, like with the daily practice, it just sets you up for a great day, especially if you do it in the morning. And the mantras are great yeah. too. You mentioned the mantras. So, um, you know, for, you can use mantras for different things and um, japa meditation. I don't know if you've heard of japa meditation. Well, so you've seen mala beads before? Yes. So we use mala beads to um, kind of like rosary beads, but you you repeat the mantra over and over again 108 times using these mala beads. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, there's mantras that you can use, like, for example, the medicine Buddha mantra, if someone's sick or you're not feeling well or there's a situation that needs healing, you dedicate the medicine Buddha to that. And that's really potent. I mean, I've heard and experienced myself amazing stories around um, sending the medicine Buddha to certain people and then having these profound healing experiences and don't, they don't even know you're directing it towards them. And so there's mantras for all different things and then these they're these like ancient codes that create a certain vibration within the body, a certain experience. Um, mm. So, yeah, mantras are another beautiful um, ancient technology that we have in yoga that are super juicy, super fun to play with. Yeah, super fun to play with. Now, one of the things that I like to ask all my guests is about uh, rejection and failure because we all have experienced these in our lives. Mm. So I'm curious to know what has been your greatest or your biggest rejection or failure and what have you learned from it? The thing that comes to mind would be early on in my career, I think we just opened Flow. These these couple, these two businessmen had approached me about doing like a yoga fit kind of DVD, you know, wanted it to be like, they pitched it to me to be like the next, you know, like Oz-style aerobics but yoga and, you know, it's going to be this big hot thing. And, and I was like, yeah, this sounds cool. And I wanted to help people. I wanted more people doing yoga because it has helped me in so many ways. So we got involved and it completely changed in terms of its concept. And they started getting me doing exercise and like, like aerobics type stuff. And I, I'm a yoga teacher. I'm, I've got no interest in teaching aerobics, although I think it's fun and awesome. And B, my coordination for that kind of thing is horrible. <laughs> and I remember rehearsing, having to do this stuff and just crying and just going, what am I 
doing? And you know what? And it was a failure. And you know, like it never took off. And you know what I learned from that? And again, I'm so glad I had an experience. Always follow your truth. If you feel in your gut that something isn't right and you don't want to do it, don't do it. Don't do something just for the money or because you think it's going to be the next big thing. Do it because it's aligned to your values. Do it because in your heart you want to do it. Do it because your whole body is saying yes. Yeah, that was a big, big face plant experience for me that turned out to be um, awesome. And I'm a big believer in having experiences like that are our biggest teachers and can often propel us. Because um, risk taking by isn't really in my nature. I have to really force myself to do it, um, and that was probably one of the biggest lessons for me. It's just didn't wasn't yeah. me, and it was never going to work because it wasn't me. Yeah, make sure that it's a full body yes, and really listen to your intuition and mm. your heart and what it wants to do. Mm. I like that a lot. And so, my final question for you is if you had an overarching life philosophy or a mantra that you try to live your life by, what would that be? Breathe well. Breathe well. I love that. Yeah, breathe less. Be conscious of your breath and let it guide you. So, breathe well. And Mm. it's just an awesome indicator as to where you're at in any one point if your breath is jagged and shallow it probably means you're feeling stressed so all you need to do is take a quiet little moment to breathe low and slow and helps everything amazing come back to the present Mm. I love that so much thank you so much for this amazing chat I feel like we've just unpacked so much and again thank you so much for sharing your journey because I think as you said it will help so many people to hear what you've gone through and it is a very um, personal thing so I'm so grateful for you to be willing to share it on the podcast. Thanks Rachel thanks for doing all your incredible work as well you're reaching so many people and you're having such a profound effect so amazing. Thank you thank you so much. (laughs) Where can people find you and all your amazing work? Yeah so you can come take a class at Flow Athletic. Our website is flowathletic.com.au or you can find us on Instagram at flowathletic Um, and myself active yogi at active yogi Um, you know we do heaps of cool events like yoga silent discos uh, which we're in the middle of doing a series of those at the moment. Uh, and also with any of the eating stuff, if you are local, if you are in Sydney, um, just keep an eye on my Instagram, uh, Active Yogi, because Carissa, my little wing woman, and I are doing, we've got one event coming up actually, which is specifically for mamas and anyone who struggles with body image, self-esteem, food issues. This one is for you. And it's a nice way to share and come together and learn some science and how to take care of ourselves and embody what it is we really want to embody for our little ones. Amazing. I love that so much. So we're going to pop all of those links in the show notes, guys. So make sure you check it out. Tell us what you loved and learnt from this episode by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you screenshot this and tag us and share it to your socials. Thank you again, Kate, for joining me on the show. And thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you next time on the Rage Active Podcast. Podcast.